The first part is understanding what happened, how it shaped you. The second part is reestablishing presence through being around people who know the language of presence and in a well-supported space. And the third part is how do I start to express my gifts? And as you move through those, and particularly that third one, that naturally starts to happen, that's where things really start to change. I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. This podcast would not be possible without our friends over at Just Thrive Health. And they've been with the show for quite a while now and one of the sponsors that I feel most grateful and proud to support and present to you. In so doing, I rarely like to clown on competitive products. It's not really my style to say, oh, this brand is the best and the rest of them suck. But I must be honest, uh, as someone who's tried to fix my gut in numerous ways, especially with a lot of very expensive probiotics over the years, I have to say that most probiotics I've ever tried were a complete waste of time, energy, and money, with the exception of the Just Thrive probiotic. What makes Just Thrive probiotics so special is that they're spore-based, and this allows them to survive the treacherous journey into your GI tract where they can make themselves at home and do what they're supposed to do. And for this reason, it's a really unique and incredible product. It's also something kids at just about any age can take. Parents can sprinkle it into the food or drinks of little ones. It can also be baked or fried up to 455 degrees and still retain 100% potency. Isn't that crazy? It's also ideal for pregnant moms to be to support a healthy microbiome for themselves and their babies. You know, newborns get their first big dose of microbes at birth while traveling through the birth canal. It also contains a very special strain of bacteria that can maintain its effectiveness when taken with antibiotics. Now talk about crazy awesome. You know, that's one of the issues when you're taking antibiotics, if you're in a position to have to do so, is that they're going to ultimately uh, cause some dysbiosis, to say the least. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it politely there. So I'm one, again, who wasted so much money trying to take probiotics during a cycle of antibiotics, which is probably futile. However, it's not with Just Thrive spore-based probiotics. So if you want to check this out, I highly recommend that you do. So if you want to get your hands on some of these Just Thrive probiotics, here's what you do. Go to justthrivehealth.com slash Luke. That's justthrivehealth.com slash Luke. And of course, we've got a discount for you. It's 15%. And the code there is Luke15 at justthrivehealth.com. Due to eating a bunch of crappy food and living a pretty unhealthy lifestyle earlier in life, uh, I did a lot of damage to my gut. So I've been working on restoring my gut health for a long time. And I recently discovered something from a company called bodybio.com that has completely changed the game. It's been incredible. I did some gut testing with my doctor, Dr. Scott Schur, and he found that I was low in something called butyrate. And I was like, what's butyrate? And he said, well, you're supposed to have it in your gut and you don't. So this company from Body Bio makes this product called Butyrate. Butyrate is a postbiotic. It's a short chain fatty acid that promotes a healthy microbiome. 
improves gut function, supports a healthy inflammation response, and improves cell health on the genetic level by protecting DNA. So I did these tests and I started taking this butyrate product by BodyBio and uh, recently retested and the problem solved. It's incredible. I love when you can test something, take a product, and then it works. Butyrate is a postbiotic that's produced by your microbiome in the gut. So when we feed our gut cells in the microbiome the right foods, primarily resistant starch and soluble fiber, then the microbiome is super happy and appropriately regulates the immune system by producing this important molecule called butyrate. The problem is, like the problem was for me, that most of us don't eat enough foods to get healthy levels of butyrate, especially those of us on the keto and paleo diets. I would say I'm paleo-ish. Try to be keto, sometimes I fail. So butyrate is just an incredible supplement to add to your digestive health regimen. Uh, this is the number one recommended butyrate supplement by integrative and functional practitioners. And as I said, it's had a hugely positive impact on my gut health and digestion after doing those labs. So I got in it for about two months and my levels were completely restored to normal. I keep taking it periodically just to make sure that they stay normal. So if you're someone who wants to improve your gut health and digestion, here is what you do. Go to bodybio.com. That's B-O-D-Y-B-I-O, bodybio.com. And when you get over to the site, you can use the code LOOP20 to save 20% off all of your products. That's bodybio.com. You, my friends, are in for a very special treat today. This was one of the most deep and meaningful conversations I've ever had on this podcast. And this is the 353rd such conversation I've had. So that says a lot. This one's called A Lion Tracker's Inner Journey of Awakening and Inspiration with Boyd Vardy. Now, before I start, I'd like to invite you to follow me on Instagram where you can watch interviews just like this live and raw in all of their behind the scenes glory. You can find me on Instagram at Luke Story, L-U-K-E-S-T-O-R-E-Y. Here's a bit about the guy we're talking to today. Since childhood, Boyd has shared his home with lions, leopards, snakes, and elephants and has spent his life in apprenticeship to the wisdom of nature. He's a real trooper. He survived a harrowing black mamba encounter, a debilitating bout with malaria, even a vicious crocodile attack. But his biggest challenge was the personal crisis of purpose, and that's what we're going to talk about today. As a university student, Boyd studied psychology and ecology, supplementing his education by learning martial arts in Thailand, hiking through the jungles of the Amazon, and apprenticing to a renowned tracker from the Shanigan tribe, deepening his intimate knowledge of the natural world. He grew up speaking the local language and learning the true meaning of coexistence between people and with nature. He continues to, like a tracker, follow unconventional pathways, to say the least. He's worked extensively over the past seven years in ceremonial spaces as an apprentice to a Peruvian shaman while generating his own system of coaching called Track Your Life, which draws lessons from the ancient art form of tracking to help people find more meaning, purpose, and motivation. I want to jump right into this dialogue with Boyd, so I'm going to skip many of the talking points, but rest assured this is not an episode you'll want to miss. The topics to follow are but a taste of what happens in this incredible conversation. We, of course, talk about Boyd's crocodile bite, how his tracking experience led him to coaching, the difference between a wild human and a domesticated human, why the mystics of history always seem to disappear for a time into the wilderness, using your body's signal as a compass to navigate through uncertain terrain in your life, establishing your unique trail and following it, how people can catch subtle signals from themselves and from the environment to course correct their lives, the ability to read the landscape of your body 
increasing your awareness of and sensitivity to the subtlest shifts in the ever-changing organic environment of business. The ability to move fluidly between extreme detail and broad vision in order to execute rapid outputs. We also talk about Boyd's vast experience with plant medicines and the benefits and risks involved as such. And finally, the story and incredible depth of his shamanic training. If you find yourself inspired during this conversation, you are encouraged to share it with some friends. Boyd's message is universal and one that deserves to be shared. Now take a deep breath. Now seriously, let's do it together. And prepared to be inspired by and with Mr. Boyd Vardy. Boyd, man, great to sit down and chat with you today. I'm so excited to uh, get to know you and your journey. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. So most of the time when I interview someone, I've been aware of their work for some period of time, been stalking them, you know, a Joe Dispenza, someone like that, right? Mm-hmm. And and I'm tracing their work, I'm, I'm digesting everything they put out, and then I managed to track them down for an interview. Uh, what's different about your case is I just found out about you maybe a week ago. We were at the same event. Uh, you had chatted with Allison and she's like, you got to meet this guy. He's incredible. I uh, saw that you'd been on Kyle's podcast and Aubrey's podcast and you, we have a mutual friend in Cal. I thought, man, what's up with this guy? So I got your book and I have just been floored. It is so epic. Oh, thank you, man. I really appreciate that. It really is such a concise, beautiful examination of the human experience. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's just, it's very cool. (laughs) Because I had a limited uh, amount of time, I've been listening to it on 1.4 speed or yeah, one and a quarter. Then I went up to one and a half. So I'm hearing you like in your South African accent, (laughs) just trying to smoosh it all in. I almost got to the end. I think I have a few minutes left, but um, yeah, the book is called The Lion Tracker's Guide to Life. And um, I think what's really interesting about the book and you did this so beautifully is, you know, there's a narrative of a a story and Mm -hmm. then micro stories within the story. And then within that are all of these really simple yet profound teachings Mm -hmm. embedded within it. And I think that's such an engaging way to learn. So, um, God, I don't even know where to start in a way. Let's start, I guess at the beginning, we'll get a little linear for a minute and then we'll go off the rails. I'm sure. Um, what was your childhood like, uh, you know, growing up around the bush and tracking and and hunting and all of this stuff that you were exposed to. Yeah, well, I would say that, you know, the the book is a culmination of sort of coming together of multiple paths in my life. And I grew up in the wild eastern part of South Africa. I grew up on a property that my uh, great-grandfather bought. It was a bankrupt cattle farm. And he brought it originally in the 1920s. And at that time, and in the consciousness of that time, my family went there to hunt. And that's what went on there for three generations. And then in 1969, my grandfather died very suddenly. And my father, who was 15, and my uncle, who was 17, were left with this sort of bankrupt property. Um, and all of the family advisors said to them, well, step one, you've got to get rid of that place. You know, you need to take care of your mother now. So that's got to go. Hunting lions is a dangerous and bad idea on the best of days. So it has to go. Um, And this is sort of a part of the story. My father stood up and from a place very deep inside of himself, he said to this group of, you know, much older captains of industry and family advisors, he said, um, we're going to keep it. And the family advisor said, well, how are you going to look after your mother? 
And he said, you know, with the, all the vigor of 15 year old brilliance and arrogance, he said, we'll make it pay. And that's how my family got into the safari business. And very soon after they got going, and it was a ramshackle piece of land, um, there's, you know, three mud huts. There wasn't a lot of game there. But very soon after they got going, they met their first mentor, which was this incredible man called Ken Tinley. And Ken said to them, if you want this place to work, you need to partner with the land. You need to think of the animals as your kin. And you need to make sure the local people participate in the uplifting of this landscape. So that was like the first defining moment. And so they did away with hunting and they set about restoring the land. Um, and really, that's what I grew up into. I was born into watching people working on the land to begin to restore it. They would clear away the scrub. They restored the grasslands. They restored the micro catchments. And so somewhere in my very young psyche, I watched people working in harmony with nature and the incredible way that nature started to respond. Suddenly, animals started to appear. A few years into the journey, a single female leopard allowed herself to be seen. And then my uncle and my father were actually driving home. They'd been working on the land and the single leopard stepped out onto the road and she stopped and she turned and she looked at them. And it was the first time a wild leopard there had allowed herself to be seen. Up until then, you know, leopards had been hunted. Traditionally, they were trying to get away from you. And so that, and, and as that happened, my uncle looked at my father and again, from this very deep place inside of him, he said, whatever just happened, that's my future. And for the next 10 years, he teamed up with a Shanghai tracker and every day they went out and they followed that leopard. And they built a relationship with her where she began to know that they meant her no harm. And at first, you know, they'd see her at 100 yards and then 50 yards. And then it got to the point where they were able to drive a vehicle up to her. And that leopard had a number of cubs. Those cubs all grew up modeling their mother's trust of the safari vehicles. And word got out all over the world that there was a place you could go um, where you could see a wild leopard. And people started to come and to me, I've always thought of, you know, as the land started to heal, there was this incredible flow of energy towards it. So that was the first part of my story was this incredible growing up in this restoration. And the second part was I was mentored from the time I was very young by these incredible Shangan trackers, men who knew how to follow the faint trails of an animal for hours across a landscape. Um, and so I grew up in that mentality too, watching how that art form plays out. And then the third sort of thread in the, the story is when I was about 18, I had a number of encounters with pretty severe trauma. Um, I had a very scary incident when South Africa was going through a time of severe violent crime. Um, a few months after that, uh, I got bitten badly by a crocodile in a river. Um, a few months after that, my family went through a very difficult period. And so by the time I was about 23 years old, I was pretty severely frozen in the way that trauma freezes us. And at that time, I was working as a safari guide. Um, and this incredible woman came on safari. And a buddy of mine who was another guide, he said, there's this woman coming. I took her out on safari last year. She's fascinating and she's a martial artist. I was passionate about martial arts. So I went into the guide room and there was a board where you wrote your name next to the clients who were coming in who you would guide. Someone else's name was there and I rubbed his name off and I put my name down to guide her. And that moment absolutely changed my life. Um, so she arrived and, you know, she was this remarkable, she was an ex-Harvard professor who had taught a course at Thunderbird Business School on how to interview well. Um, and she worked out that the way to interview well was to be, to really care about what you were interviewing for. 
So she developed this program for her students on how to like really get in touch with what you loved. And I took her out for three days and I felt a connection with her. Somewhere on the third day, we were driving along through this, you know, restored landscape. And she says to me, we were, I can't remember what the conversation was, but she said, the restoration of the planet will come out of a radical transformation in human consciousness. And my 23-year-old traumatized self just felt something hit me. I just, inside of myself, I said, you know, whatever you've just said, that's my future. On the same day, we get back to the camp and she looks at me and she says, you know, I can see what you're holding and I want you to know I'm here for you. I'm like, you know, I'm 23, I'm South African, I'm the guide, I've got my rifle, I'm standing next to the safari vehicle. I, I sort of was a little taken aback by it. And she said, you know, I can see how, how blocked your heart has become. I'm ready to talk to you about it. And there was something about the way, and, and later I learned this, that, you know, when someone really sees you, I mean, so much of healing is just seeing a person truly. And as she said that, you know, I felt myself just crack open. Um, and that was the beginning of my healing journey. And she became my first guide. Her name was Martha Beck. She became my first guide into how a transformational process works. And as, my, as I went through my own transformation and learned the art form, um, suddenly my childhood in the, rest, in the restoration of a landscape and my childhood watching trackers all started to come together in this really weird way. And I started to look at the trackers and realize that the mentality and the approach of the tracker had so much to teach us about those moments in our life where we arrive at a place where we don't know how to move forward. There's something calling to us, but we don't know how to find it. We know that the way we've been doing things is no longer quite holding us and we need to set ourselves on a new course. And so watching the trackers, I started to see that right there in front of me in that process was, was kind of everything you needed. So those are these sort of three strange threads that have come together to put me in this place, in this work right now. Well, I think the thing that's so fascinating about your work it is the, the overlay of those parallels in uh, in the tracking and the attention to detail, uh, embedding oneself within the harmonic field of nature, mm-hmm. and then applying that outward journey in the bush to the inward journey yeah. of the emotional, spiritual, mental, physical landscape. It's such an incredible um, parallel that you've made there in your work. I think it's just so fortuitous that those particular things lined up. And and like you describe in nature, and those of us that are innately in tune with nature to some degree know that, um, I mean, it's kind of a Vedic <laughs> overview, but there's only one thing, right? Consciousness. Yeah. yeah. And consciousness is expressing itself in the natural world and also within us and everything that makes us a living being. So fascinating. I mean, what I would say about that is, you know, um, what I've come to believe now is that inside each one of us, uh, there is a part of us that is wild, that is truly of nature. And you could almost think of that part of yourself as the wild self, you know, then overlaying that we have this incredible density of socialization, all the things we have to do and should do and all the ideals of the culture, all of that stuff. And when you arrive at a, at a point in your life where you begin to want to go deeper into the expression of your essence, a life that feels more like it, it fully supports the way you create meaning, your gifts into the world. 
well, you're going to have to go underneath, underneath the social self to that pure consciousness of the wild self. It's like that innate part of you that actually knows what you meant to do. And that I call that, that innate part of you, the, the track, you know, the track of your life. And then you start to be able to attune to that and follow that like a tracker. It starts to pull you out of all of the rationales of what you should do and how you should do it into something much more authentic and, and just wild, really. Oh, it's so um, great. You know, and listening to the book, um, I'm driving on the freeway. I've got my EMF cap on. You know, and it's like, <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm looking at the, I mean, I'm living in the outskirts of Austin. So coming from LA, I feel like I'm in the bush really, but, uh, but not enough, you know, mm-hmm. I'm listening to the book going, man, I got to move to the middle of nowhere and just be in the woods, you know, oh. which, which I've been feeling this pull for so long. Yeah having um, in, in not as a dramatic of ways, but I, I grew up in the country and small towns and spent so much time in the mountains and, and such. And uh, anytime I get out of the city and mm-hmm. the construct that we've created externally, that then, as you said, reflects internally, I just leave a city and I go, ah, it's a tremendous change in your nervous system. It's just, it's so palpable. And I think it's, um, it's just so interesting, you know, going back and I was thinking about this in, in, in your book, I'm sort of having side threads as I listen to your many threads in the book. It's, it takes me back to the advent of agriculture, mm-hmm. right? That was such a big turning point for humanity where perhaps out of our laziness and just the inertia of wanting sustenance readily mm-hmm. available and not having to go track and hunt for it, yeah, that we all just started migrating towards, I guess they were kind of villages and then settlements and then towns and then cities. And there are so many things about being in a city that uh, make life seemingly easier. But mm-hmm. with that comes this price of disconnection yeah. from who and what we really are. I mean, and then I think neuroses becomes yes. a substitute for real suffering in some, in certain instances, you know, the, this inst, the, the anxiety that comes with it. I mean, there's a few ways of looking at it. The one thing that I would say is, um, nature is a relational field. You're always in relationship. You're adapting, you know, off the way the environment is speaking to you. And our society is more of a comparative dynamic. There's something about the way that this, is, this consumeristic society is structured. It's like, in a society where the individual is disconnected from the greater whole, the whole search for meaning um, becomes, how am I doing in comparison? And so then you, to work out how you're doing, you have to constantly be comparing yourself. And that sets up its own sort of really strange dynamic um, because you compare yourself against these ideals that it presents you with. And, you know, the, the way where you end up, it seems to me, having coached many, many people now, is you either achieve the ideal, you know, which in our society is something like the right level of wealth. Um, and you realize, well, that's not actually going to take me where I want to go. Or you live with this constant feeling of there's something wrong with me. I haven't quite made it. I haven't quite got there. Um, <laughs> and, and it's like, and what people have to know is it's structured into the psyche of that kind of a, a structuring of meaning. Whereas in nature, um, last year during lockdown, I spent 40 days alone uh, living in this treehouse, And so I was deep in this encounter too. Nature is continuously relational. When you spend a lot of time in it, what you see is that there is an intricate um, pattern to it. And that pattern is infinitely intelligent. 
And the more time you spend there, you you have to you you can't help but see. You can't help but see that there is like a series of interlocking intelligences all touching each other. You know, if you look at a tree, it's the tree is throwing shade, which is driving the grasses, which is creating great moisture around it, which is making the nutrients denser. So it's pulling the sugars out of that nutrient dense soil. It's alchemizing it into sugar. It's creating fruits, which are attracting in monkeys. The monkeys are being used as a transport system for that fruit. They ingest it. They go out and re- you know the whole, you just watch it unfolding. And as you watch that, uh, what becomes impossible to put aside is not only is that intelligent, but I'm a part of that intelligence. It, it flows through me and I'm of that greater intelligence. And if I can attune, and that's really where the tracking metaphor comes in. If you can start to attune to that place inside of you that knows and, and pay attention and start to learn what the tracks look like to you, it will start to pull you um, into a full expression of your own nature in the way that a tree knows how to bloom at the right time of year and a flower knows how to open. You actually know how to fully express, express your gifts. You just have to slow down enough and go a little deeper than the rational mind into a place inside of you that, that you learn to follow. You know, kind of like when we met the other day and you said to me, um, yeah, I mean, I never wanted to, I never thought I wanted to move to Austin. It was never on my radar, but you know, we, we passed through here and something in us felt like maybe this could be it. You know, it's not, it's not up here. There's a, there's something else that knows. And because of the work that you've been doing, you're able to attune to it. Um, and so the tracking model for me is just a very simple system that gives people the approach of the tracker to start thinking about how to attune to that place. Wow. So good. Yeah. I, I sort of just bypassed that part of our decision process, you know, cause there was a linear plan or, or uh, criteria mm-hmm. with which we were deciding where to go. And this fit some of the, the logical uh, criteria, but yeah, you're so right. More than anything, there was just an inner knowing that this is where we're supposed to be. Yeah. And uh, the other night at the event um, at which we were both present, that became so clear. Yeah. So clear. I mean, it was like a group of very awake, powerful beings in one room talking about um, current events and where we're going from here and and how to navigate uh, these strange times we find ourselves in. And it was like, I kept looking over at Alice and kind of like, are you feeling what I'm feeling? I mean, I had chills the whole time. I was just like, whoa. But you said something very important there though. You know, you're looking around the room and you look at Alice and you say, are you feeling what I'm feeling? Right. Not are you thinking what I'm thinking? Exactly. And that's, that becomes a core difference. And part of learning to live on the track of your life is being much more attuned to the way that feeling speaks. Um, you know, and for like for me, you know, I experienced it as a kind of expansiveness, a physical feeling of expansiveness in the energy of my body, a feeling of wanting to sit forward. Um, and so one of the things that we talk about as trackers is trackers live in their body. You know, one of the things you see my mentor used to do in the tracking space is he would turn onto the track of an animal and he would start moving on it. And as I'm watching him, his eye is catching the track, but what he's doing is he's starting to move at the pace of the animal. And as he moves at the pace of the animal, he's almost letting the animal into his body. So you can imagine if a lion is walking slowly or if a lion is walking fast, you can feel the difference in the energetic. Um, and the track is certainly telling him, you know, the speed at which it's moving. When a lion is walking fast, the back 
Paul lands well in front of it. But really what he's doing is he's getting into the lion's mood. He's using his body to attune to the way that animal is moving. Is it hunting? Is it patrolling territory? What's going on? What, you know, what mood is this animal in? And in doing that, he's starting to create an almost energetic resonance with the animal. And, and you know, so watching that enough, I said, you know, if you're going to start to to find this thing that is calling to you, you're going to have to be in tune with your body. Just like a tracker, you have to start paying attention more to what makes you feel that way. And at the same time, like what constricts you? Who are the people who expand you? Who are the people who energize you? What makes you feel more alive? Who are the people who constrict you? Uh, what are the activities that afterwards you feel drained of energy? I mean, it's, it's kind of simple. And what happens is that if you start paying attention to it, at first you'll, you know, because you're not attuned to it, you need to hit the big ones, like big movements. But over time, it refines, it refines to the point where you're constantly in what I call the following state, but constant creative response to that feeling inside of you. And so it's a fun way to live for sure. Going, um, yeah, yeah. going back to uh, one of the points you made, which I think is, it's, <laughs> it's like the most obvious yet most elusive is when we're immersed in nature, you know, I find this really interesting how, okay, we've migrated into cities. Well, many of us have migrated into cities or urban areas, right? And so uh, in the planning of these cities, like Austin is a great example of that. Mm -hmm. The people that plan said, well, we need to create areas that are that are preserved yeah. uh, in a natural state, right? And so we call these places parks and we go there to recreate, to recreate. Yeah. Right, what what has been lost because we built this infrastructure there, and then we go there and we sort of like going to a zoo. We often observe, oh, this is beautiful. Look at that river. Look at that tree. Look at that mountain. I'm now looking at nature rather than the vis visceral experience that you're describing, wherein one has the acknowledgement of the truth that one is nature. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe it's the fact that we have, <laughs> then this is debatable and you have a relationship with animals. I was going to say we have a more developed brain, but maybe to a fault, right? That we're able to intellectualize our experience in such a way that I'm assuming animals don't, that they're just inherently in that yeah. felt sense of oneness with the environment. Whereas we, uh, through the way that we've learned to live, I think are often disconnected from that and and, you yeah. know, it's interesting as someone too, who, as I said, spent a lot of time in nature as a kid, I think I'm just learning how to be of nature, mm -hmm. uh, partially with the assistance of a couple of experiences in which I took psilocybin out mm -hmm. in nature. And just, I mean, you know, when we'll get into medicine stuff here, hopefully in a bit, but I just started looking at things so differently yeah, and alive. just being in things and just you know, just kneeling in a creek and eating the herbs and looking at just all the organisms and microorganisms and just seeing what you described in under the tree and that yeah. cycle of life and just immersing myself in it. And um, one of the beautiful things is that because of a couple of those experiences, now the way that I interface with nature holds the memory of that yes. knowing. And I don't have to go take mushrooms if I want to yeah. like really marvel at the beauty of yeah. an intricate flower, right? I mean, I just do it now. And it, and when I do it, it reminds me of this one particular day in which I had this profound realization that, Luke, you are not in nature. You are nature. This is the same as you. Yeah. You are the soil. You are the tree. Yeah. You are the squirrel. Like 
there's no separation because it's all emanating from the field of consciousness or God, creation, whatever one wants to call it. It's just that the way it's set up is that consciousness individuates itself as all of these parts and the parts like us tend to get tricked into thinking we're a part rather than we're part of the fabric of the whole. I mean, there are so many, uh, like so many jump off points there, <laughs> by the way. It's like, that is, well, I mean, one of the things you said that caught my attention early on was the oneness, right? So what you see out in the natural world, particularly amongst the animals, when you really watch them, you know, I think we do have very well-developed brains, but we also have a verbal mind, which they don't have. And the verbal mind projects future, you know, oh, I got to go do this tomorrow. And it, and it lives in the past. Whereas if you watch the animals, they live in a wordless dimension. And so there's no future or probably, you know, I always joke, like you don't see lions thinking like, we missed that damn zebra yesterday <laughs> where this team is not performing at the moment. And who knows if we'll eat tomorrow, you know, right. they're just present, always <clears throat> present. And as you spend time there, it's like the momentum of the human verbal mind starts to drop and drop. And as you go out of the verbal mind, you go into a state of presence and that is the doorway into oneness. And suddenly you start to feel yourself as a part of it. Um, another thing that I've become convinced of is if you put your attention on life, you know, like what you did that day uh, down by the river um, with the plants to help you, as you put your attention onto life, where your attention goes, your life goes, you know, you put your attention on life, you become more alive, you become more animated by that life force itself. Um, so that absolutely happens. And there's no doubt that the sacred plants are teachers that, as you say, they teach us how to be aware of that. And then you don't constantly need them because they keep giving you a new normal of perception and connection. And then that becomes, that becomes your baseline ability to interact with that field. Um, wow. Yeah, so, so true. It's, I mean, it, it's all of it. So true. I guess that's really the key to integration, right? In these experiences yeah. where you're going interdimensional and delving into the fabric of reality in ways that you wouldn't in a normal waking state. But when you come back is when the real work is, right? Because yeah. you just get a little window into things being much larger than they appear to be. And then when you come back, I think it's really sage advice um, that you're, you're, you're pointing to is it's about integrating that so that, like you said, that becomes the new normal way of being, which I guess is what I just described. And that 100%. I go in nature now. Yeah. And I mean, taking a bunch of mushrooms is, you know, it can be pretty harrowing. Even if you're having a good time, it's definitely yeah. jarring to the system and not something I would want to do on a regular basis. So how can I take that experience and, and, um, and remember in a felt sense being this mm -hmm. rather than intellectually, oh yeah, I remember one time I took mushrooms and I saw a lizard and I realized we're the same and that becomes some mental mm -hmm. construct or belief system, but rather how can I keep that visceral, innate, you know, tactile yeah. experience alive, even sitting here with you, not in nature seemingly, although we actually are, we're just in nature inside a building. But I think that's a really important part, not just of integrating any kind of sacred plants or medicines, but in integrating anything that comes to you in a state of reflection or meditation. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking for some time now that, that um, one of the things that the sacred plants teach is what I call um, the third language. The first language is the spoken language. The third language is the language of feeling. 
So it's much more, um, it doesn't matter what we're saying to each other, what kind of feeling is there between us. And that's a, that comes out of your presence and my presence. Um, and then the second language would be like the body being like more able to more, more naturally affectionate with all the socialized. So that, that those are kind of the layers of it. And that, that becomes, you know, paramount, as you say, as we start to live more and more in the feeling. Um, and that's the, another thing about trackers is this kind of sensitivity. You know, it's weird. Like the, the guys who I grew up around who spend hours and hours out there in nature, following lions, finding animals, um, their sensitivity to them was a total gift. You know, the ability to be attuned, that kind of feeling awareness. Um, and then, you know, sort of switch over to the masculine society where it's like, feel nothing. Uh, people, who, guys, and I've, I guess I'm speaking to the masculine men who spend a lot of time in nature, find that sensitivity to be an absolute gift. And particularly when you're tracking, you want that kind of awareness. Um, and when you see an animal, it will communicate to you in that third language. So as it looks at you, as its body moves, as it gazes at you, as it drops its head, as the tail starts to lash, everything is, it's an energetic language that it's talking to you with. And you want to be able to be sensitive to what it's saying uh, so that you don't get eaten for starters. <laughs> but but that's an, it's an incredible feeling to see how wow. everything in nature talks. Um, and the language is very clear, but it's nonverbal. It's energetic. It's presence language. Yeah. Oh, my God. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. Let's take a pause. I want to share something with you. You know those times that you're so into what you're doing, you can't think about anything else? The days you read half a dozen chapters, write a thousand words, or finish a work assignment without looking up once, and then finally when you do, you notice it's dark outside? Well, how'd you like to feel like that every day? I'm here to tell you, you can. It's totally possible. Psychologists call that feeling of being in the zone, a flow state, the optimal level of consciousness where you can perform at your best. Our sponsor, AlphaBrain, helps you to achieve flow state and supports other aspects of cognitive function for better memory, focus, and mental processing. AlphaBrain can help you remember names and places, focus on complex tasks, think more clearly under stress, and even react more quickly. And this has all been documented. With its trademark earth-based ingredient blends, AlphaBrain builds an environment in which the brain can operate on all cylinders and protects its functioning for lasting mental clarity. If you're ready to have a brain that works, turn that thing on. Go over to onnit.com slash Luke. That's O-N-N-I-T.com slash Luke. And use the code Luke at checkout for 10% off. Get yourself into a flow state over at onnit.com slash Luke. And now back to the interview. So... Say you come upon a lion yeah, and you trackers and safari guide type folks are, you're hearing what it's saying, mm -hmm. right? How do you learn to communicate back using that same language? Yeah, I'm going to move a little bit. So tell me if I get away from the microphone. It's okay. So, you know, the first thing to know is that like the art form of tracking, what we want to do is normally want to find those animals and we want to see them before they see us and then find out where they are and then move away from them without them seeing us. That's the, that's what we ultimately want. We actually don't want to disturb them ever. Um, lions can be dangerous on two occasions. One, when they have meat and when they have cubs, lionesses with cubs can be, you know, that'll get your 
blood flowing. If a, if you come up upon a lioness, for example, with cubs and maybe you surprise her, uh, the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to get an audio cue. It's going to sound like someone started a dirt bike in the bush up ahead of you. And then she appears oh, <laughs> and she fixes you with an intense gaze. And it feels like you can feel the energy and it's, it's menacing. And then the ears go back and the body, the whole body tightens. And then she starts to walk at you. And the snarl comes up and you see intense teeth and then the tail and she starts to walk and then she starts to run. Now she's told, <laughs> telling you very clearly, you're too close to me now and I'm unhappy with you there. In that moment, as a tracker, you, you need experience to have, um, you know, put yourself in these situations mentally before, to have been in these situations before. First thing I do is I breathe out. <sighs> so I drop my energy. Can you imagine? <gasps> So that pulls me into present. I take a long breath out. Then those, if we more than one, we step very close together and we stand. You have to stand. And that's it. So now we're saying to her, as she comes, we're, we're dangerous too. And we, we're communicating, you know, and we're working on thousands of years of her programming that the hominid is a dangerous thing out there. As she comes close, you look directly at it and then you be a little bit aggressive. So you push aggression back. Hey, you know, you shout, you step forward, you stand. And then she'll usually stop, you know, sometimes two or three meters away from you, <laughs> growling, and you feel your energy, like the energy field fills up, but you've got to manage that. Um, and then the second she relaxes a bit, you give her space. So you, as soon as you can, you communicate, we, we're moving away, we're moving away. So you have to meet the, the intensity first and, and then very quickly uh, start to back off from it. And you can, you can use it for... Conflict situations everywhere in your life. As conflict goes up, you want to become more present. You want to listen because she's communicating to you. Um, and then very quickly, you want to, uh, you know, offer, um, offer the, the highest outcome, which is, which is to give space, you know. Um, so there, I don't know, there might be something in there. When you're, oh, that's fascinating and terrifying. When when you're tracking, uh, are you guys typically carrying firearms? I know you're not hunting, but are, what if said lioness is like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to call your bluff and keep coming. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't carry uh, rifles. If guests are being guided, there's always a guide with a rifle, but just when we are tracking, uh, no, we rely on really being attuned to that language. And I should say an encounter like that, you know, normally, um, if you're getting the tracking right, the whole place is speaking to you. You know, for example, that towards the end of the book, I talk about, you know, we get onto the tracks of a lioness and, and there's a pride and we're following them. And then up ahead of us, a monkey starts to alarm. Now that monkey is talking to us. Um, 30 yards beyond that, a type of antelope starts barking. So you're on the tracks. The tracks are telling you the speed the animals are moving at. The animals are talking to you in the brush up ahead. Um, and then, you know, you see, uh, you see the tracks of another female joining and the tracks tell a story and then you see a cub track. And so now, you know, another lioness has joined this pride and she's got the cubs with her. Now, if you're doing all of that, right, you're telling yourself we're close. Um, these lions are moving slowly. The temperature's building. So they're going to lie down soon. We know there's water down here. We know they ate earlier. So their bellies are full. So they're probably going to 
um, drink some water and lie down. And all of that information and being able to catch all of that information means that we're not going to blunder down um, into the thicket there. So I would say 99% of the time being attuned to that information means there's a lioness and cubs in that thick area. We're not going in there. Um, but on the one occasion that you do get it wrong, you know, they are not motivated to kill you. They don't want to eat you. Like you know, everything on the discovery channel is like death week, you know, nature will kill you week <laughs> yeah, and like yeah. spiders that can, you can, that's not how it is with awareness. Actually, it's speaking to you all the time and it's a very safe environment. In fact, it's more honest in some ways than, you know, the world of people. It, it talks to you all the time. And what is the purpose of tracking? Is it just to observe the natural phenomenon of these incredible creatures? Well, I mean, what, what mostly allows us to do it there is we're tracking as a team who tracks for the safari operation. So we'll find animals so that we can let guides know where they are out on the property. Um, that's at one level. On another level, it's, um, it's kind of a, for me personally, it's a martial art. You know, it's a, it's a practice. And there's so many things that are happening when you're tracking that is that you can, you can get infinitely better at it, um, you know, from novice level to master, master level. Um, it's dynamic. It's storytelling. It's um, your skill level can improve. It pushes you in. It creates a flow state. It creates a focus state. I mean, when you, there's a thing that they, that they call again, you can apply this to other places in your life. They call it developing track awareness. So like when I was a little kid, uh, my teacher would take me to a game path and he would say, okay, walk down this path, come back and tell me what tracks there are. You walk down the path and you come back and you say, saw tracks of a herd of impala, antelope. And he would say in Shanghai, say, young boy, go look again. And I would go down there and um, then if I looked more closely, I would start to see where uh, a mouse had crossed the trail and a leopard had walked and the antelope had walked on top of it and covered it over. And every time you walk down that trail, there was more information there. And that became a super important idea to me over the years. The idea that there's information, but you have to teach yourself to see it. And so, you know, if you and I walk down a path together, I'm going to see a radically more tracks than you. And uh, over time, it's like you condition your eye to be able to pick up this very faint set of algorithm, or sort of like little search images. And so if we tracked a lion together, we start to move fast on that track. And, you know, I can see where the back pad has touched down. I can see where as the lion has picked up its foot, sand has fallen off onto a piece of grass. I can see the way certain bits of grass have been pushed down. Um, whilst I'm following that track, catching all of those subtle signs, I start to vector off trees up ahead of me. So I get a sense of how the, the lion's moving. So I'm waypointing as we go. I'm starting to feel the speed of the lion. I'm starting to feel, you know, in the way that it's moving, I'm starting to almost get into like a kind of resonance with it. And when you get deep into that, I'm listening for alarm calls. Um, my eye is picking it up. I'm, I'm moving, I'm orientating myself. When you're doing all of that fast um, to the point where you'd be doing it like you were driving a car, you're not thinking about it. It's just all happening. It takes you into this incredibly deep place and you're just moving through nature. And there's a creature out there, um, you know, that's up ahead. So you have to develop your track awareness and the, and the more track awareness you get, the more it starts, the actual art form starts to pull you into flow. Um, and then, you know, try and translate that over into other places in your life. Um, 
I mean, maybe for a second, I'll just talk about a few of the little like waypoints in tracking that you can apply. I don't know if that yeah, could be helpful. Yeah, please do. Absolutely. I mean, that was one of the brilliant things about uh, your work that I discovered was the correlation, right? It's it's fascinating to just learn about something that's exotic. Wow, God, I can't imagine doing that. You're face to face the lion. There's that part of it. But that that's really... Um, novel and entertaining in a sense, but I think what was so powerful about your book and the work you're doing is like any great master is extracting lessons from one parallel and applying them universally. So yeah, please unpack some of that. So I have just a few of them so that people can sort of land the plane on it and, you know, all like for tracking, it begins with us very early in the morning. Um, and often we'll sit around and we'll listen and what we're listening for, for example, is lions to roar somewhere. When you hear those lions roar, you get a, a broad idea of where they might be. But really, you don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a massive wilderness. They're out there somewhere. They could be moving. You don't know where they're going. You don't know, you know whether you'll even find a place to start or not. And so all tracking begins with being very, very comfortable with unknowns. You know, and all tracking almost begins with saying, with letting go of, we don't know what's going to happen this morning. We don't even know if we're going to find tracks. Um, and trackers actually, if you watch them, they, they allow the unknowns to make them feel really, really alive. Um, if you pull that over into the personal development space, you know, I've coached many, many people now. And mostly what they say to me is, when I know exactly what my next move is, then I'll make it. And I say to them, you know, tra these transformational journeys begin with letting go into being comfortable with not knowing for a while, not knowing how it's going to look, not knowing where it's going, not knowing uh, what the outcome is going to be. The next thing that a tracker will do is they'll work on what I call first tracks. So all you need, for example, is to find that first track of where those lines moved and then the next first track and then the next first track. And in this massive infinite wilderness, all you need is, you know, one moment of presence and then one moment of presence. All you ever need is the next first track, you know? And my teacher used to say to me as he was going, saying, ah, I don't know where we're going, but I know exactly how to get there. Hmm. He meant first track, the next first track, the next first track. And he just, you know, he would produce outcomes, tracking for hours, a single lion somewhere out there. And we would find it because consistently he would be able to just get the next movement. Um, and so in our own lives is to ask ourselves, like, how do we dial down all of these possibilities? We don't know where we're going. What's the next thing we know to do? What's the simple next thing we know to do? And as we, as we do that, a strange thing happens. It starts to pull us towards this future that is unyet fully defined and um, that we don't know what it is. But normally we can ask ourselves, what makes us feel a little more alive today? What makes us feel a little more expansive? Who makes me feel a little bit better? What is the activity that makes me feel just a little more myself? Um, and if you work with that consistently over time, suddenly something new starts to manifest itself. And it's so counter to our culture, right? Where we, from the time we were kids, everyone was like, you got to know, you got to know exactly how this whole thing's going <laughs> to go. And transformational processes are, are not knowing, but then suddenly realizing that you do know one thing to do and then a next thing to do. Um, you'll have to develop your track awareness and you'll need your body for that, right? What we were talking about earlier. So part of developing track awareness is actually knowing when you hit that feeling, and actually tuning back in to say like, okay, that, that feels expensive. That feels expensive. That's a no, that's a no. And just kind of doing it's hotter, it's colder for a while. I mean, it's kind of like, it's outrageously simple, right? It's like work out what makes you feel better 
and keep trying to work out ways to do that. And at the same time, map what doesn't make you feel good and move away from that. That's the way your own nature will speak to you. Um, when we go tracking, often we lose the track. You know, you'll be, you know, three hours into it. Two minutes ago, we were dead on the track. We were right. We knew exactly how this was unfolding. Boom, some hard ground, some thick grass, track is gone. Um, and, you know, I always say to people, it's very important to know that part of tracking is that you will lose the track. Um, part of transformational processes is you'll be like, I'm getting this. I'm, I'm, this is going so well. I left the safe zone behind. Cheers, safe zone. We're on fire here. <laughs> oh, wait, maybe this doesn't work. <laughs> wait, this is not going anywhere. Um, so you have to know that to say like, you will lose the track as part of a change in identity, as part of a, a transformation. When the trackers lose, lose the track, they do two things. Um, one is they'll go back to where they last had the clear track. They'll go back and get a clear sense. We were on here. So you might ask yourself, you know, like, when was the last time I knew I was clearly on track? Who was I with? What was I doing? Uh, the other thing they do is they just try things, you know, and I've seen this in the Shanghai trackers in particular. They're less, you know, saddled by, you know, the Western need to know. Um, and they just, in a very dynamic, playful way, they just keep moving forward. They get a sense of where they think the line was going. They estimate, they check some open ground. They give themselves the room to discover. Um, so I always say trackers live in discovery rather than the need to know. Anywhere where they don't find the track, they call that the path of not here. So it's, even if you're not finding it, it's helping you refine where you do want to go. Um, so that's important to know. You're going to lose the track, play on it, you know. Give yourself room to discover. Uh, I always say never track alone as best you can. Pull people around you who are also involved in that process. When we track together, we track so much faster. The track cuts right. You'll see one of the trackers clicks. He puts his finger down like this. He says, I'm on it. The animal cuts to the left. Someone in the middle will pick it up. And so together, and that becomes the community dimension of it. We, we, we take care of each other. We watch out for each other and we push each other to track better. Um, and if you do all of that well, you fall into this beloved, uh, you know, of any, what anyone knows who has a practice. The practice becomes the thing that nourishes you. And the outcome is we start to find animals consistently. Um, but it doesn't, that's not really what we're doing. We're just so in the art form, letting nature speak to us, improving our skills. And same with transformational processes. If you can give yourself to the process at a certain point, living like that, living attuned, living aware, living in touch with that track inside yourself becomes the way to live that actually never ends. There may be markers that you achieve along the way, but as you live in it, it's what nourishes you. And, and there's, there becomes no full outcome, no place I'm going to get to. And then I'm going to feel like I've found the thing I'm meant to do in life. The living itself becomes the art form. Um, so good. Yeah. And then, and then the final piece of it, which you know, I think is interesting to this time is, um, and, and I, in a way I feel like I'm talking to a tracker because you did this, you know, years before anyone else did this. Like same as what I was saying to Alison the other day, there was no like course you could study to do what you have done. You built it out of this very essential place. It was like communication, biohacking, spirituality, you know, and you started to pull these essential places in yourself together into this offering that now is very unique to you. So it's like, and to me, there's an activism in that in these times, you know, because, and this has become almost the most important part of this work for me now. People who find this thing, when I look at them, 
and we touched on this a little bit the other day, the gathering we were at, people who start to touch this track inside yourself, your the expression of your unique gifts, there's a, they have a few characteristics when you spend time with those people. One is they seem to have deeply embedded a feeling of enough in them. They feel like they have enough, um, they're enough. It's just this sense of enough. And the result of that is they're not trying to get a lot of external stuff into their life to feel like they're valuable. And that's, a, that's powerful for nature. You know, many, many people finding that will change the dynamic of a consumeristic culture that keeps you hungry for things to feel okay. So they have a deep feeling of enough. They, they have an inclination towards simplicity. There's this sort of natural sense of, I want to just simplify. Um, they deeply attuned to nature. And if they haven't been, they feel, they start feeling this incredible pull to start falling into that field that we were talking about earlier, where I am this, it is me and it nourishes me and I nourish it. There's a natural desire to serve. Um, and as you seem to, you know, be in touch with that place, it's not like, I want to do good work in the world. It just starts to flow out of you. There's a creative impulse that comes with it. And there's a natural desire to uplift people around them. And so, and I think that when that happens, it, we live in such a confused time, right? Where, <laughs> you know, where people like... Perhaps the most confused uh, ever, yeah. And I think that that transformation of consciousness that I heard about, you know, all those years ago as a kid will come out of many, many individuals finding that place inside of themselves and then doing the work and it's work. This is not, it's not easy to let go of the structure of society and actually try and live into this place and, you know, see if it, you can do it and handle the financial pressures of life. And it takes courage to like find that and work out how to express it in the world. But lots of people doing that, um, I think that is discovering that place. That is the collective awakening. Um, and many, many people finding that, you know, someone who finds that it seems like they start to become like a tuning fork in the world. You know, people get around them and say, I don't know what it is about this person, but something about what they're doing is what I actually want. And so they, just your presence when you're in that state starts to wake other people up. And it's so messy right now, but, I, I think that there is an opportunity to fire an algorithm through this collective. Um, and that algorithm is an algorithm of awakening. And I think we can't know what happens when lots of people start to fall into that place and touch that place. So that's, that's the mission now, you know, is connect yeah. people, as many people as possible with a model, a system that allows them to do that for themselves. So I'm getting on, off on a tangent here. I, dude, I love it. Trust me, I, I, I would interrupt you if there was any need to. <laughs> uh, and I do so accidentally often as well. There's so much to unpack in there. I think one of the things toward the very beginning of that that is so important um, to explore is this idea of losing the track, right? Yeah. And and how important the the perseverance is. And when you look from... You know, you were talking about the parallels of of the tracking, physically tracking, and then in kind of a personal development realm. But even in people that are deeply committed spiritually, uh, many of the, uh, you know, you read about the apostles and mystics and saints mm -hmm. and sages. I mean, this very common experience of God has forsaken me, Yeah, right? I was at one with God. I was 
I was evolving, growing spiritually. I felt connected. My prayers seemed to be answered. I was able to meditate. I was reaching these higher levels of consciousness. And then, you know, the dark night of the soul. Yeah. And then you lose the track and you're like, God, I haven't even changed. I'm the same person. You know what I mean? It's like, I mean, yeah. And and anyone who's done personal work is like exactly that, right? Making progress, making progress, making progress. Oh no, it's still the same old shit. Here it comes. But I ever, yeah. yeah. So I think it's a really important, it's important part of the journey to expect that. Yeah. And not, not in a, you know, like um, self-fulfilling negative prophecy, but just to know that there's kind of, I always think of it as a graph, you know, as you're raising your consciousness, it's like, it's this upward slope. And this could be said of humanity too. I think, I think it's what we're in now. Uh, But on this graph where it goes up, you know, there are dips and then in the dip, you think you're now headed back down to the depths of hell from which you came. But really it's just a dip, but the graph is still climbing, right? Yeah. All the time. And I think that's such an important thing for us to, um, those of us that are on the path of awakening to remember, like, don't lose faith when it gets dark, thinking that it's the end of your grace period, right? I think so much of my life has been imbued with I don't think I know it's been imbued with just such a depth of grace. I mean, I should not be here doing what I'm Mm -hmm. doing from any logical standpoint based on uh, experiences in my past. Yet here I am feeling, as you said, fulfilled to the point where, God, there's just, I'm so full. It just spills out. I have to share what I'm finding, you know, finding people like you and I can relate to you and share your gifts with the world um, on my platform and just things that I do interpersonally going into the bank and feeling fulfilled. So that teller is not someone that's now annoying me because I had to wait 10 minutes, but someone who is a human being that I can connect with and share a smile if they don't make me put on a mask. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's, um, you know, that moment where you've lost the track for a long time. You know, and, and with great trackers, you can be off the track for 35, 40 minutes and they're just trying things. They're working around the area. And then when you get back on it, um, it's such an amazing moment. But also what you find is you get better at time at getting back on the track and losing yes. it and readjusting and losing yes. it and readjusting. And I think you get better in, in those personal development processes too, where you like, you know, sometimes if you go off, that's it for a long time. But over time, you, you learn to course correct a bit quicker, do the things you need to do to get yourself back on track, develop your practices so you can get yourself, you know, you shrink the time that you're off the track for sure. That's so true. That's um, so true. That's a really great distinction. Yeah. I mean, I'll pop out for a, a few days here and there. Um, and it used to be a few weeks and it used to be a few months. And then it was like all the time <laughs> prior to that, you know, but right. now it's a few days. And, and I know that my practices were the things that quick me can pull me back in. So you get, you definitely get better at it. And I also think that, oh man, you know, the path of not here. Um, trauma healed is becomes medicine. Um, as you, be, as you are becoming, you become someone who's lost the track a lot and still been able to hold yourself with compassion. When, when people around you lose it, you've been there and you can be someone who said, you know, in my journey, I've lost the track. And so we're doing this for each other is what I'm trying to say. And, and every time one of us gets through a period of having lost it and gets through it, we become a cheerleader for those around us who are coming along, who are going to lose it. We can say we've been there. So 
we're all learning how to do this together uh, and we get to support each other with real compassion there. And so many of the people in this awakening are defined by what they've done with the times where they lost the track along the way, rather than by the successes and the, the things that our culture holds up, you know? Oh, that's so true. It's so defined. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've been thinking a lot uh, lately um, about unseen acts of heroism. You know, I recently read um, Desmond Tutu, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu is this incredible struggle activist in South Africa. Uh, the moral voice of the nation all through the apartheid era. And just this, this eloquent, vibrant speaker, incredibly well-educated. Um, every morning, his mother would wake up in apartheid South Africa and she would go to work as a domestic worker. She would cook and clean and sweep and vacuum. Um, and at the end of each day, she would be given 50 cents. She would catch the bus home. And the next morning, she would give her son, Desmond Tutu, 50 cents, and he would catch the bus to school. And she would go off and work the whole day knowing that at the end of the day, that money that she earned would go straight to her son. She, would, she was never, she was running to stay in the same place. And when you, when you look at Desmond Tutu, I mean, it, it kills me at the moment. You look at him and what he's done in the world, you don't think of his mother really, you know, when he's standing up there leading a country out of oppression and and there are just so many acts of unseen heroism at so many different levels. And those are the people who are moving through this, moving us into this awakening in so many ways that we don't even know about because it's not up in lights. And I think we have to pay attention to that. And anytime we lose the track and we have the courage to stay in it um, and not bail on our process and just go back to something where it's known and structured and safe and stay in this, Man, we're a part of that unseen heroism in some way, you know? Absolutely. It's funny in my life, I've had the opportunity to, on a few occasions, share space with exalted beings, you mm -hmm. know, saints, teachers, mm -hmm. et cetera. And, uh, and that Shakti pot left imprints on me that definitely uh, were turning points in my life, unbeknownst to me at the time. Yeah. Later on, looking back, ah, I was just in the presence of someone and it altered the course of my life. And there have also been times where I've been acutely aware that I'm sitting with a master who has no position as a master. Right. And it's that, it's that energetic, yeah. the subtleties of the way they move or speak, or just as you said earlier, that energy that you feel from mm -hmm. an animal. And this might be, I mean, it's like, I, I think I've given the example before when I was in uh, Los Angeles, I had a housekeeper named Odelia and, um, it, it really has, it speaks a lot to perspective too, right? Mm -hmm. And preconceived ideas we have. And, you know, I didn't come from money. I never had a housekeeper growing up or, <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like my mom used to clean my uncle's house. So he would babysit me. I mean, my mom was effectively a maid on the weekends, you know? And um, so I would look at her coming in the house and I, I would feel bad, you know, like, oh God, what a kind of a shit job she has, you know? Yeah. I'd, I'd feel like compassion for her, kind of feel sorry for her in a way, you know? And then I started to realize as I'm on my computer stressing out, trying to do the deal and, you know, run the calendar and the things. And every time she comes in, she's just ecstatic. Yeah. She loves her life so much, loves her job. And I would thank her. Oh, thank you so much, Adelia. And, you know, give her her check. And she, oh, thank you. I just, 
I love my job. I love my work. I love, you know, the pride and how clean I can make a house and I get to work in all these beautiful homes. And it was such a great lesson to me in a twofold in that, you know, never, never sell the person in front of you short in terms of how evolved they are uh, based on externals and also how one frames their experience of life creates their reality. Absolutely. You know, I have what I think would be an easier life. And here I'm all stressed out, you know, not in all days, but there's moments, right? And I'm sure she has her moments too. People die, people get ill. I mean, it's the human experience, but I've had so many of those teachers that have come in and haven't said a word to me about how to live life, but it's in their presence. It's the the, right? the, the, second, the third language. Yeah, it's you the know? third language. You're going, huh, you yeah. figured something out here. And it, you know, it might be just someone you pass at the gas station. Oh or- my God. And Africa, you know, Africa is so rich with that heart. You know, on the side of the road, you break down, someone comes and helps you. And it, it, Africa has its darkness. But mostly what I've experienced is just an incredible outpouring of that kind of joyful aliveness. And it's a much more collective consciousness there. It's a much more of what I would think of as a we consciousness. So I'm thinking of that game, you know, uh, what would it give you? Well, you know, it's an old coaching game. It's like, I need to, I need to get a job. Well, what would it give you? Well, then I would be uh, more successful. Well, what would it give you? Well, if I was more successful, I would be happier. Uh, and then what would that give you? Well, then I would be, be able to finally be at peace with myself. You know, and you go all the way around to like, okay, let's just see if we can get to at peace with myself and start <laughs> totally. there. You know, That's um, so good. Yeah. That's so good. Well, that's the thing with, the the western achievement oriented mind right is that i'll be happy when i'll be happy when and what i've discovered for myself is that until i was able to cultivate a sense of enough Mm -hmm. within myself then i realized no matter what level of success outwardly i achieved i would still be carrying that person that has the never enough not there yet consciousness right yeah and so it's like, right now you could make me a billionaire and yeah, maybe some things would be more convenient, probably much more complicated really, but I would still be as satisfied with that life as I am with this life now, because I've learned how to build within my char- character satisfaction yeah. with what is. I mean, it's that exact thing. It's just, well, okay. So you, you trace it down and just start with the end goal. And yeah. how do we cultivate that end goal right now? And I think people are, people are redefining wealth in a big way right now. Yeah. You know, the, as those characteristics that I was saying earlier, those people in that awakening seem much more interested in experience than material wealth. And they, I think they've come to a place where peace of mind, like really going to bed at night um, without, you know, a body that is revving so high with cortisol and stress hormones. I mean, that's not... There's no way to live. And I think people are getting to that too. So part of this thing is we are re- re- really redefining what it, what it means to live. Um, and it, it just, you can't give it all away for monetary value alone seems to be a part of that. Um, yeah. You were mentioning uh, trauma and this is something that eluded me for a long time because uh, as someone who experienced quite a bit of it early on, mm-hmm. I just always had the sense that you could just go talk to a therapist a couple of times and, you know, bleed out those 
deep, dark secrets about which you were ashamed or hurt. And then you're just done because you told someone about it or you, you verbalized it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in recent years, having done so many interviews with people that really explore and heal trauma in many different ways, uh, I see this as just such a core issue. And I know that's something that you touch on too. I'm wondering if you would, uh, you know, just if nothing else, because of my innate curiosity, if you would go back to the traumatic experience that you had, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was around a kidnapping or something of this nature, uh, if you feel like exploring that. And then also, I, I have to ask, what was it like to be um, chomped on by a crocodile? And then I'd like to go in some of the ways in which people can explore really deep healing of trauma mm-hmm. um, because the things we're talking about can be kind of lofty to someone who is still having that reflex continually yeah. triggered. Yeah, um, for sure. They, I mean, when I was 18 years old, my family was, uh, it was a time when South Africa was going through a very difficult time. Violent crime had really spiked. Uh, and myself and my sister and my mother and a woman who, I lived with us, who was a teacher of ours. Um, we're in a house on the outskirts of Johannesburg and we were involved in this um, this kind of home invasion situation, which was, this is absolutely terrifying. I woke up at gunpoint and, you know, the, the woman in my life were tied up around me. And so it's just, you know, a massive uh, red line into fear. And at that time, those sorts of situations were not ending very well. Um, it's probably quite a South African way of saying that, but it was, it was just terrifying. And it went on for a number of hours. And um, between me and my sister and my mother, we were in this very deep um, third language, you know, as that was going on. And you know, there's this, the people who had come into the house were obviously traumatized themselves. Um, you can't read a person's body language like you can read an animal's body language. And so I just was totally at sea with the whole experience. And there were two parts to it. Uh, the first, just the blind terror of, of being in that situation, not knowing where it's going to go. Um, then right towards the end of the experience, and this was in some ways the beginning of a very deep spiritual journey for me, right towards the end of that experience, they took me outside and they told me they're going to kill me. Um, and so we went outside and they pushed me down onto the ground and they put a gun to my head. And in that moment... Um, something happened. And years later, I've, you know, come to have more understanding of it. But, you know, when, when the ego goes to a place where it's so afraid, it eventually stops. It reaches like a level where it can't go anymore. And right on the brink of, of being told you're going to be executed, it stopped for me. And I touched that, I went across into some other place, you know, the peace of God, that path, this understanding or whatever that place is. And suddenly everything went very still and into deep, deep, almost like slow motion. And there was less I, you know, I would only be able to talk about it in this way now. There was not really an I and (laughs) there was only love. And I looked at the traumatized kid who was standing over me And, you know, I put my hand up and we looked at each other and the whole energy changed. And this, and it became this like weird, only way to describe it is like weird glimmer space. Everyone just sort of 
stood there and looked at each other. And I walked back inside and I got car keys. We had a car parked in the driveway and I gave them the car keys and just helped them into the car and they drove off. And I like came out of it and I went back to the room where my sister and my mother were locked up. And it was like, it was, it was, I don't even know really, you know, and for years afterwards, I was dealing with two sides of a coin. On one side, I was dealing with what happened in my body physiologically when you wake up in that situation. And I was also dealing with this other thing that happened that I was 18. I didn't yet have the spiritual practice even to begin to know what that was. But something in me knew that trauma and awakening can go together in some way. Like trauma and healing is somehow connected for me in my journey. Um, these two things. And so, you know, that was the first one. A few months after that, um, I had taken some friends down to the river. This was away from Johannesburg. This was in, in the bush. And it was a clear day. The water was running over sand. And because the water was clear and I could see, I turned and I began to walk upstream. And everyone else had stayed down by the stream. My friend who was with me, a guy called Soliam Shongo, brilliant Shangan tracker, he was walking on the far bank. And as I waded in the water, I was happy with the visibility. There was a place where the sandbank had fallen away, sort of in the river, but it had dropped down a little bit off, off the sandbank. And as far as I was concerned, you could still see enough, but I was wrong. And I walked onto the edge of that where the sand fell away and there was a crocodile in the water there. And he came out and he grabbed me by the leg and he went to pull me in and there was a branch overhanging. And I threw my arm up and I grabbed the branch and he went to bite me a second time and I kicked and my foot went down its throat and it spat me out. And I pulled myself up into the branch and as I looked over my shoulder, my leg was just mangled from the knee down. Pulled myself through the tree onto the bank and Solly uh, was making his way towards me. And he got, now he was coming from the far, but we we're on opposite banks. He's coming towards me. He got to the deep section where he knew the crocodile was and he just came straight into the water and he waded across to get to me. It's just this incredible act, you know? And he picked me up and he dragged me up onto the high bank and I took my shirt off. I did first aid on myself and got, got everyone together, called a plane that was flying over. But you know, it, was a, it was another moment where I was bleeding so much out the leg that that difference between knowing you're going to die one day and thinking, oh, is this happening now? Um, so it took time to recover from that. And, you know, there were a few, you know, my awakening was stacked with a few traumatic experiences that pushed me into being ready for some kind of healing. They froze me. It froze me, I would say. Um, but it, by the time I met Martha, who became my, my teacher and helped me heal, um, you know, I was, I'd had like, three things. Um, so, you know, what do I think about that? I think that the things that happen to us when we take the time to delve into them and move through them, firstly, the things that happen to us freeze us. Um, and they freeze us in a number of ways. Some of they freeze us in the way we hold our body. They freeze us in our nervous system. They freeze us in the way we tell story and we make meaning. And unfortunately, talk not unfortunately, talk therapy is incredible because it helps people um, unpack and help to look at their story. But it, it doesn't always solve the nervous system issues. And so you usually need some kind of body practices 
Um, and uh, it, 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 the body practices will also take you through into the physiological. Um, so trauma, those traumatic experiences freeze us, but they also fill us with medicine in some ways. And we have to know that from the beginning, the things that happen to us as we process them. Uh, one more thing on that. They freeze us. And what happens is it takes you out of presence. So the nature of it is it orientates you in something that happened in the past or a fear of what might happen in the future. And so what trauma work is, is it's the ability to help someone reconstitute the way meaning was made, the way story was told, the way the nervous system and physiology react in a way that starts to help them be present again. And big part of that is supporting, creating enough safety and support that they are able to start to feel again because feeling becomes the doorway into presence. Um, you have to know that you're not probably going to do it all in one go. <laughs> you have to know that built into your trauma is a gift, is a medicine. That's not to say it should have happened. That's not to say what happened was okay. But as you work with it, it will render a gift for you to pass on. Um, so how do we do that? How do we start to work with our trauma outside of just talk therapy? For me, that, that has become about ceremony. Ceremony is what starts to happen in a group where we start to create a shared presence. Because if there are some people in a ceremony who know how to drop into presence, they will pull traumatized people into presence with them. They will start to teach them, not like now I'm going to teach you, but by being there, they will start to teach them the third language, the language of feeling. In a ceremony, if it's well held, it's, the sitters are good, there will be an innate safety in that space. And the psyche of a traumatized person will register that safety. They will feel it deeply. Not you. This is going to be a safe place. No, you will know it in your core. This is safe. And you will look at the people who are sitting and holding the space and unconsciously your psyche will recognize that person can hold me. Um, and so as we do that work, that's what been my context. We start to pull people into a different way of being. The, the final dimension of that is we remember how to be people again. Touch can be reestablished in a safe way. Um, a more animal nature starts to come out. We remember how to be creative as we become present together. So ceremonies are containers that, that energetically reconstitute re presence, teach people presence. And what starts to happen is a traumatized person set, who goes to a very well-held group starts to say, I had this encounter with this present person who felt safe, who was able to open up and share. And, but I'm actually this person because, you know, I got to get through my life and it's dangerous out here and things happen. And, and then they come to another ceremony and then they come to another ceremony and slowly more presence starts to take place. They talk about what happened to them. They witnessed in what happened to them. They're supported in what happened to them. They're also pushed to say, and now what do you want to create? What's next for you? What, what is your gift? Show us. And it emerges in those spaces. And slowly with time, they start to realize like, wait, that scared person, and this is what happened to me, that scared person is the shell of me. This is who I am. You know, after two years of working in those spaces, it was like, 
no, no, hold on. All those things that happen to me mean I'm good with trauma. I'm, I know what it's like to very certain kinds of trauma. I'm good with it. Oh, wait, you know, actually I have something to offer. So the first part is, I'm sorry, and then I'm going to land the plan. The first part is understanding what happened, how it shaped you. The second part is reestablishing presence through being around people who know the language of presence and in a well-supported space. And the third part is how do I start to express my gifts? And as you move through those, and particularly that third one, that naturally starts to happen. That's where things really start to change. Wow. That's Dude, mic drop. If these <laughs> mics were droppable, I would, I would drop it. This stupid stand is in the way. Uh, man, what an, what an incredible articulation of that method of healing. And it, you might've noticed as you're talking, I've just felt these waves of emotion. Um, just reflecting back to uh, ways in which I was so stuck mm-hmm. unknowingly, even, you know, 22 years of like very committed spiritual work before I sat in my first ayahuasca ceremony mm-hmm. and, uh, and ended up oh, in the course of a couple of years doing about eight of those amongst a, a number of other different ceremonies with different medicines. But the, uh, I was taken back to the initial experience with, with ayahuasca and it's, that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Exactly what happened. And it was so interesting in that, you know, and I used to think this was, I mean, I'm a pretty woo woo guy, but when people would refer to like ayahuasca as a she that you talk to and it mm-hmm. knows things, I'm like, dude, it's a plant. Okay. Like maybe God designed these molecules mm-hmm. and put them together in this way put it in some native person's head to boil them up in this way. But it's just God using this tool to get through to you. And maybe that's true. But I have to say, uh, in the first two experiences, there definitely was a personality mm-hmm. present. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's just say that. Not, not like, you know, some people have an animal come to them or someone, a face, none of that, but just like, the sense in my being was, whoa, there's someone here with me. Mm -hmm. And I think because I had been a drug addict in my prior life badly for a really long time, and then I had been 22 years without taking any Mm mind-altering substances, sitting there and waiting for that second cup of ayahuasca to hit me, uh, when it came on, it it was so perfectly orchestrated in the in the way with which it introduced itself to me Mm -hmm. because it didn't take me into any trauma yeah it gave me it or she and the people present gave me such a sense of safety Mm -hmm. and love Mm -hmm. And also just, <laughs> it was so hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like all the heaviness with which I had been carrying myself on this arduous journey of self-awakening yeah. and um, spiritual awakening. That it was like, oh my God, all of this is so funny. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And there was this just incredible liberation of my spirit because 
especially I think because of so many of the confines out of self-preservation that I had put into place, there was no monkey business. There was no like getting high air quotes. Right. And as that overcame me, and I've shared this before, but it was the irony of it was just so massive is that it's like a voice said to me in response to the following question, Luke, this is the most sober you have ever been in your life. Because I was, I really had to struggle with like the identity of someone who's sober and in recovery and all of this. I mean, it was not something I took lightly. That's, that's like my tether to life itself is based on that. And the question that I posed was, am I still sober? (laughs) Yeah. Because I was afraid to lose that. Yeah. And that that knowing this, not a voice, but just a knowing this was like, no, this is actually reality, right? Yeah. Where the veil of the limited spectrum of dimension that I'm able to perceive through my everyday senses was whoosh, wiped away. And you know this, um, I'm now in this other grid in which there are multitudes of dimensional realities available to me. Yes wherein I can play, I can work. It's kind of self-guided, but not. It Mm -hmm. takes me away. And then I decide to come back to this thing and, you know, the whole thing. And there was two nights of that, of just like, oh my God, I'm home, I'm free. And not only that I could trust the experience, but there was such a deep trust of myself Mm -hmm. that... Keep going. That the track that I'd followed Mm -hmm. led me to that moment. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of a new track. Mm -hmm. There was a massive turn, (laughs) you know? And then that turn led to other turns and other turns and multitudes of tracks. And in, you know, in the past two years of my life, it's like, it's, it's unrecognizable. Yeah because of those experiences. And, and I always, I want to be um, responsible when we start talking about plant medicines and things like that, because as you so clearly indicated, this is not just an automatic occurrence when you ingest a substance that has this effect on your biology. This is so much bigger. And the care with which one has to go about exploring these realms cannot be overstated. Mm-hmm. But anyway, back to the trauma piece. It's funny because I can see my ego like come back in and go, dude, you're like crying like a baby on your podcast. It's not the first time when I'm in the moment, I'm just like, I don't care. And then I go, what did you just do? You look ridiculous. It's it's hilarious. I love observing observing that phenomenon and just charging through it. But to the point of trauma, and I want to, there's so much more I want to learn from you on this. Um, My introduction was like, it's safe. You can trust yourself. You can trust this experience. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, this was fun. And then the third night, it was like, hey, want to look at the wound? Mm-hmm. The big one. Yeah. And not look at it, but feel it. Yeah. The depth of it, the yeah. weight of it, the impact on your entire mm-hmm. life and psyche and every outcome mm-hmm. that has been born out of every minute decision you've made are all traced back yeah. to this one event, which was in my case... Um, Uh, sexual abuse when Mm -hmm. I was a kid. And then, you know, just all of the threads and all of the nooks and crannies that I've been able to go into and just transmute 
into, again, as you indicated, an awareness of those experiences as gifts Mm -hmm. and necessary in the process of becoming who I am right now, sitting here with you. Not to condone abuse, obviously, you know, and just, but I don't even know that I could say I wish some of the things I experienced never happened because I, I don't think I really do. That's I mean, do you wish you'd never been bitten by a crocodile? That's, that's not uncommon to say that, actually. Because, you know, what you're describing is such a reconstitution of meaning um, in such a fundamental way. And what I love about it is that, you know, what we know about working with those teachers is that it's not one plus one equals two. You know, the plants, they have, they have certain plants have a certain nature, but like it's about your presence, the intelligence of that, the intelligence of the group, which constitutes something very different. So for you, it immediately started to establish first safety, then, um, you know, a taste of the ridiculousness of everything which is a, a part of it. And only once you had the trust, could you then, so the psyche, the space, it's all intelligent and it's not, it's not a formula, which is what's quite amazing about um, how those spaces work. But, but then what happens is together we start to reconstitute meaning. We, the way it is structured, and this gets, it gets hard to talk about, but meaning, meaning has a way of structuring itself into life and into um, into our psyche and into the way we co-create with life. And when we become traumatized and frozen, part of what breaks is our capacity to recreate meaning with every moment in life. And so what happens is the loop of trauma just repeats itself um, because the meaning structure remains the same. doesn't matter what you're doing. You go live somewhere else, the meaning structure will is still embedded there. But somehow when we work at a deeper level and we reconstitute the meaning, and that can be extremely com- complicated, but it can also be very simple. Like a person who has been incredibly physically unsafe finds themselves lying in a ceremonial space. Um, the medicine is coming down and actually what is left is just a quiet presence and people casually lying you know, a foot on someone, an arm on someone, you know, uh, just people sort of in the space, no one moving, but touching. And even if not touching, connected in the energy field, you know, that feeling of being everyone in this room is somehow fundamentally in a field. Just nothing's happening. If you were to stand on the outside, you see this very still group of people who've been journeying or lying there. But at a much deeper level, meaning is being constituted. I am connected. I am safe. I am a part of a mystery. I am, all of that is happening at deep levels, deeply unconscious, almost conscious and unconscious levels. And that's struck restructuring the fabric of meaning inside a person. Um, and that happens, there's so many ways in which that happens when we start uh, doing all kinds of healing work. AA is an incredible way that meaning is restructured, you know, starting with I'm powerless. Um, you know, just, because most people are fighting using their own power to try and not do this anymore or try and do this or try, you know, I'm powerless. Okay. Suddenly the meaning starts to restructure. So um, it works at, at so many different levels and it, you know, it works with those 
with those plants, but it also works just starting for us each time to just be present with each other. Um, and it's a, it's a process, you know, it's, it does not happen quickly. You know, how was the programming laid down? You know, then that scary place where you start to take it out and you left with like a state of deep transformational tension. I'm not what I was, not what I will be. Well, I'm not that. Oh, well, what am I? <laughs> oh, wait, I'm going to add a few of those things back, yeah. but of my own choosing. Yes. You know? Yes. Oh, wait, I'm going to add a few new things. Oh, wait, there's some things that want to come, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's such an important point to that whole thing. Uh, and it takes me back to a very strange and unplanned um, 5-MEO experience a couple months ago in which I went to hold space for four friends mm -hmm. that were going to be journeying. And uh, part of the facilitator's protocol, which I guess was optional, but I opted in, was that you know I wasn't a facilitator. I'm not trained to do that. So I'm just kind of hanging out in the room and just being quiet while they do their thing. But part of it is that you take a meditation dose mm -hmm. to help drop into the field with the person who's doing the deep journey um, as a means by which to um, create a conduit for them to do their work, right? And so that was my intention. But what ended up happening was, and it's I'll try to keep the story short because there's I want to like there's so much more I want to bring out of you. But that happened four times with four friends this before I left um, LA. And each time my intention was to just do a small little bit, but no one was really monitoring me. It was mm -hmm. just kind of, you know, you inhale what you're going to inhale. And I had four full-on, full-on uh, excursions. And uh, needless to say, I mean, the, by far the single most profound day of my life and probably all lifetimes really. Mm -hmm. um, but what you described of having to <laughs> kind of piece back a, a new version of yourself on some scaffolding that's been left behind is what yeah. took place in the days and weeks to follow. It was like at first alarming the mm -hmm. next day mm -hmm. because the mind came in and said, oh, you've really done it this time. Mm -hmm. You're gone now, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's just like you broke yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you fucked up. Yeah. And then thank God, Allison, you know, the voice of reason was there and I was <laughs> courageous enough and trusting in her enough to say like, I think I might've like gone too far. Yeah. I, I might be gone. Yeah. Like go to an institution type of gone. Cause I, yeah. I came to that morning just like feeling real weird, Yeah, real weird and not blissed out like I normally would be. So anyway, she's like, you know. Well, well I mean, just one, I yeah, interrupt you, but like, you know, as the ego as the ego dissolves more in ways that it, and it can't hold, um, it starts to feel like it's dying. And then um, what comes in underneath that is a survival pattern. Mm. And so that that's the survival pattern is usually I broke, I broke something we're, we're going down here, you know? And so that, that's a very sensitive place you were in. Yeah. yeah and thank God I had such yeah. a goddess and, mystic at my uh, beck and call that morning because I you know and then there was the fear she's going to be pissed that I was too extreme which I have a tendency to be and yeah, you so, know. so as part of that survival you start finding a little paranoia there yeah 
And I, I looked her in the eyes and I said, <laughs> man, I just got to be honest. And I told her that. And she just looked at me without flinching. And she said, oh, sweetie, this is just an initiation. I went through a bunch of these. You're fine. That's all it took. And yeah. I just kind of medicine sort of came back over me and it got all like, you know, and I just, okay. But anyway, what so ensued were days and weeks following wherein (laughs) I could barely do any human functions, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, there was no chance of working or doing on a computer or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Or my phone just looked like this foreign object, you know? So I would just intuitively just go sweep up Mm -hmm. And then I would go meditate for a couple hours. Then I would sit there and go, I got to do something. So I would go do the dishes. I just had to do the most simplistic of tasks to just kind of remind my body and self that the orientation I'm in is a human. Um, And then as you so wisely indicated, since there was such a blank slate there, there was this canvas on which my personality started to emerge Mm -hmm. stroke by stroke, there was much more agency to determine which stroke and which color was to be sort of allowed back into the framework. Mm -hmm. And um, and it was a really, really cool experience to actually be able to observe the Lukeness coming back, right? Right. The reconstitution of personality. Yeah. Yeah. And just kind of learning how to be a me again and also in the realization that there really is no getting away from the true nature of your DNA code. Like I have the same sense of humor. Yeah. I have the same preferences. Like totally. there's still totally a me, but it's more like as I communicated with the personality that wanted to reemerge and kind of infiltrate, there was now an adult in the room mm-hmm. that was creating the parameters by which that human self can come back in and reincorporate with the soul higher self. Yeah. And so I, fascinating. And also it's like, you know, people watching like, geez, these two dudes have gone like way off the psychedelic <laughs> edge here. But, um, you know, not really. This experience that you're describing has been talked about for hundreds and hundreds of years uh, through all of the mystical teachings, you know, um, a Satori experience a Samadhi experience, you know, it comes by various different names. Eckhart Tolle, after his experience, um, went and sat on a park bench for a year. You know, the great awakening was not constituted by, but it was like, <laughs> he went to a park bench and he sat there as pure awareness for a year. And then a knowing came that he should move to Vancouver. I mean, it's like, right. <laughs> and um, so I'm just to say that, I think that when, you know, when you do glimpse beyond those veils um, and the, sorry, the final point is that every, every great mystic who has been replaced, I guess you would say of the awakening experience, like fully enlightenment experience, replaced by pure awareness, they are, in my experience, they have these characteristic hints of personality in them. You know, they still, there are things they do from like who they were before and certain styles of sense of humor and, um, you know, so it's, I, I get it, yeah. and, but it's an interesting, all, all of that transformational work is becoming aware of how I was, how I was programmed and then 
like realizing that programming because you've, you've just been in it for so long that it was just who you were. And then you start to see like, oh, that's where that came from. That's where that came from. That's what drives that behavior. You know, like, you know, people like, for example, you know, the classic is like people who achieve and achieve and achieve to try and feel like they have value. Um, oh, wait, what's driving that? Okay, go underneath one level underneath that. Oh, I was never, uh, go one level underneath that. This, I was never allowed to, it's all, it's, and it is. And then you start to get awareness of it. And then some of that stuff's got to go. Um, but the, the thing that's important to know about it, I think, is that um, awareness, the first, the first movement of a transformation is always to see it. And that's why the shaman lived outside the village. He never lived in amongst the people. Oh, really? Because, you know, that was all going on there. Everyone was living their life, you know. The shaman comes in from the outside. So he's totally objective. And he hasn't been, you know, if you're in something every day, it almost becomes like wallpaper. He sees the movements, the patterns, the, the energetics. He sees it from the outside and he sees you. That's the first movement. Here's what you're doing. Boom. And that always becomes the beginning of a transformation. You become aware um, of this thing you're doing. I mean, I'll try and say it like this. Like, first, you're unconsciously unconscious. You don't know what you're doing. You're just doing it. Um, next, you become consciously unconscious. You become aware of this thing you've just been repeating for years and years and years, the same trauma loop you've been in for years. Now you realize, oh, I'm doing it again. I'm pushing people away. I'm turning to substances. I'm recreating the need for attention, whatever it is. Oh, I'm watching myself do it, but I'm still doing it. Uh, number three, here comes transformational tension. I'm making a different choice. And it's hard. You know, <laughs> it's freaking hard. Like mm -hmm. I want to do the thing I've always known to do. But, and this, this is in ceremonies becomes super important because some of what happens in a ceremonial space is other people who are in the healing space or along the journey start to provide options, different options. And if you've been severely traumatized, like if you've been severely shamed, usually your only option is to isolate, isolate. If people are good in a space, as you go to isolate, because your shame's coming up, they'll say, they'll catch it. And they'll say, hey, here's an option. Why don't you share with me what, what's going on with you? Oh, I could never share with you. I'm, try it. So now you get an option. Healing of trauma always involves the establishment of more options, more choices. Then over time, you start to be able to say, my shame's coming up. I need to talk to someone. I need to reach out. So now you're getting a different suite of options to choose from. And you do that enough and that you've got to stay in it, stay in it, make different choices, make different choices. I know the pattern. I've, I see what I do. Now make a different choice. And then finally, um, a new pattern establishes itself. And you don't even have to think about doing it. You feel shame, you call someone, it, you, it's, it's become uh, what they call unconsciously conscious. It's just what you do now. Um, I hope that's, I wasn't too all over the show. No, that's, that's amazing. The, that's amazing. I've, I've heard someone like kind of rattle off those different stages, but not elaborate on them. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. But the yeah. establishment of options becomes really yeah. big. And, and the reason that, it, that the group is, is like sometimes when you've been frozen, like, and you, you know, how many people have I sat with who've been severely traumatized? You say like, I don't have any dreams. Like you, you're telling me I should like follow my dreams. Like I don't even have any dreams. And I'm like, well, maybe you weren't meant to dream alone. 
Maybe we're meant to dream in the village. Maybe we, what you need is us to help dream for you a little bit until you get going. And that's, it has to happen together. I don't know what else I would do if I wasn't doing this. Um, Okay, well, here's what I did. Uh, You might try this. Have you thought about this? Would it feel good to do that? Like it can come in a, that's the support that is necessary and we don't have to do it alone. And there's a point where I'm not sure we can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we could, we can go a long way alone by tuning in, but at a certain point, I think, you know, part of what we're all doing as we heal is like trying to, you know, Terrence McKenna's old thing of find the others, you know, find the others. Like, that's why I think it's amazing what you do is you just, you put out so much, you put out such a frequency of find the others, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So necessary. How did you end up in your training or mentorship with this Peruvian shaman? How did that come about? And and what was the process of your initiation uh, that led you into facilitating ceremony? You know, the first ceremony I ever went to, I was taken there by a friend. And um, when my teacher walked in, who really taught me those spaces, um, I watched him look around the room. And in years of being around trackers, I saw a tracker. I just saw his energy was to me the energy of a tracker. Like it was clear no one was going to tell him what to do. It was clear that he was a little bit of a rogue. You know, he was like not going to be by the rules, by anyone else's rules. Um, You could just sense it. He's like, um, and then he looked around the room and he stopped on a woman that I knew immediately. And she was very nervous about the ceremony. And he said to her, "I, I can see what you're holding right here. It's okay. I'll be with you. And so and she had talked to me a lot about how she was nervous and he just picked it, boom, and he started to create a connection with her. Um, and then when the, the ceremony began, as the, as the medicine came on, he was right next to me and I looked across at him and um, I'll just tell you the whole thing. He flashed a, cra- a cat across his face. I saw this cat like a jaguar across his face. And then I just started facilitating. Immediately, I just, the way that we would do ceremony is it, was, it wasn't structured. The whole thing was that in this society, we've all been told what to do for so long that actually what you want is just people to learn to follow the energy rather. So it wasn't super structured. And I just started working. Um, really? Just instantly. It was like That's so I had such cool. a sense of where the energy was, where the process was and years around animals. I just looked, everyone I looked at, I could see how their body was shaped and I could see how I could place my body to create an energetic and I could see, you know, how to play with people who were very shut down. I could see how to make, it's just all there. Um, So I thought, you know, I I knew in that moment, this is going to be a part of my life. Um, And I just thought, well, I'm the, you know, I'm the best at this um, because I was (laughs) in in that. And, and of course um, the fall came shortly after that. Um, and then, so that first ceremony was just like, it really put me into it. And then my work really began, uh, after that. And there was, that was, then it got, you know, very, very difficult for a period of time. And I was deconstructing so much, and I didn't know what else to add back. I was, I got into a real kind of limbo space for a while where, where I I didn't quite know where I was. And he, he, about three years went past before the mentorship began. And eventually um, I said to him, you know, I was very guarded. I was very, I said to him, I want to learn this work. Will you teach me? And he said to me, "Um, you're saying you do, but you're not asking yet. 
And I said, but I am asking you. He said, no, not with the feeling. So, and, and he just kind of left me with that. Wow. Um, not with the feeling. And then um, a little bit later, uh, we were in a group and he's, the group had started. And he said to me, just as the group was getting going, he said, yeah, you have a very ambiguous relationship with your power. And then he moved on. Biggest relationship <laughs> I love time. Like a classic shaman. He just seeded it, you know? Yeah, yeah. So then later, um, you know, once the ceremony is like really starting to get going, I call him over and I'm like, uh, hey, what do you mean I have an ambiguous relationship with my power? And he put his arm around me. He said, do you want me to tell you? I'm like, yeah, I want you to tell me. He's like, you want to know now? And I should have known. And, um, and I was like, yeah, tell me. And then he, he said to me, he, he like put his mouth close to my ear and he said to me, um, you present well, but I can see you're frozen inside. And you, you can tell a good story, but you don't actually know how to, how to create the life you're looking for. And, <sighs> and as he said it. Are you on medicine at this time? It's just coming on. <laughs> oh shit, here we go. <laughs> and Start I, the engines. As, as he said it, I felt like, I was like, get away from me. And, you know, we had trust. So he had waited for a moment to unlock something. And I, he was right. I was, I, I didn't have true confidence. I was acting on some level and it hurt so much. And for me, that I put that hurt into rage and what I learned later is that almost always a rage is a kind of spiritual detox. And the rage came into, you don't know who I am. You don't know all that, you know, angry, really? angry young man stuff. Yeah, you don't yeah. know. I, I can, and it went for about two days. And I, I've, there was some shame, you know, because it was kind of true. I couldn't quite, you know, move out of the things that had happened to me. I wasn't quite, wasn't coming together for me yet. So there was a lot of that. And then eventually the next, the next day I couldn't, I couldn't like be around anyone. I was the next day. I, you know, this voice would run through my head, like, you know, you're, you can be quite pathetic sometimes talking to myself. And I was like, yep, you can come on in. You're, you're weak and you don't know how to create the life you want. Yep. Come on in. And the next day there was compassion for all of those parts of myself that I was trying to keep out of shadow, you know, trying to hold back like the parts of me that didn't know what it was doing and was weak and thought it should know and didn't. And it's just started to let them all in, let them all in. And I just spent that day by myself in the garden of where this house was, where the ceremony was happening. Just come on in, come on in. And I felt it starting to subside. And I just, I let in all my weakness that I, growing up in South Africa, safari, I let it all in. And the next night, I, he, I went over to him and I said, um, I think, I think I get what you're trying to say to me. And I want to, I want to grow. I, 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 I want to grow. I, that there was the humbleness to actually finally say like, I want to genuinely grow. And he said to me, you can do this work. Um, but we need to move through the, what, the, what's left of the self doubt. And that's when the mentorship began. Wow. Yeah. How incredible. Um, and, and it became incredibly warm between us. Um, and, you know, he was, it was never, it was warm, but um, he never actively was teaching me. He would let me be in the space and watch him work. And then we got into the, the third language with each other. So 
I could feel the energy and it was a, a, a very deep gift that was given to me um, to have a mentor, oh, you know, to have a teacher and to have a, a truly, you know, you know, shamans don't run like sages. They're not nice. They're shamans, you know? Yeah. Um, it's not the same, like it's different. They're in the realms of the energetic. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, it was, that was the, that was the, the journey. And then just started sitting for people. And, and I don't, you know, Alison asked me, I don't call myself a shaman or anything. I just sit for people and try and be present and support people moving through trauma. How long was the period with which you were traveling and doing ceremony with, with a particular shaman? Uh, it was about uh, five years. Wow. Yeah. So hundreds and hundreds of lots of, of lots individual of, awakenings, lots of sessions, people of, popping, yeah. ding, 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 yeah. ding. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. And it what was, an there incredible were, there life. Were, there were a lot of reps there watching the different ways in which people came through and out of and the way that those spaces started to work and the community that starts to emerge there that is so foreign to us in this culture. Yeah. 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 Sad, sadly, is. Yeah. I think it's more prevalent in this particular locale than in many other places mm -hmm. in terms of Western culture. They're like the event we were um, present at the other night. It was just like, oh my God. I know, right? Just an incredible convergence of humans right here. And, and, and I think it's no coincidence that many of the folks here are uh, by and large pretty involved in in ceremony as mm -hmm. well you know i mean there's definitely a community here that sees the value in that and participates um pretty pretty bigly i mean and i would i should say to anyone listening that my definition of ceremony is it does not have to involve any kind of plants any time you gather people and you go under pretense, you know, you drop under the pretenses of modern mm -hmm, life. Mm -hmm. And you can do that with a question that everyone is asked to answer. I went to an amazing dinner the other night where someone, you know, the prompt was for the dinner, one person talks. And the question was, um, you know, uh, what sounds, uh, tell a story that sounds like a lie, but it's actually true from your life. Mm. And as you, and as people went around, ah, boom, we dropped, you know, we dropped under the, yeah. uh, the, all the socialized presenting. And so you can make ceremonies wherever you are, just discover how to go under, you know, the deeper, go deeper. You know, one of the great one that Martha always used to use is she would say like, okay, everyone write down where you live, your, your relationship, um, write down, um, your work, write down your, your like husband, wife, brother, sister, family status, write down all the things. Okay. Now introduce yourself and you're not allowed to use any of those. And those are like our social cues. Hi, I'm Boyd. I'm from South Africa. I work as a, you know, it's like, uh, I'm on a journey to I'll try and present more essence into the world and, and yeah. do what feels, yeah. So it's That's funny because the, the other evening when we, uh, there's, I don't know, a lot of people, maybe it was 75 people or something. It was like a hundred people. Was there? Yeah. yeah. It was a pretty, pretty big crowd at this uh, private gathering and, and they asked everyone to briefly just introduce themselves. But I think it was indicated like not what you do, but who you are. And I try not to, you know, I try to stay present and just listen to other people and not ruminate on what I'm going to say that's going to make people like me the most. But I really couldn't come up with anything. You know, it kind of got to me. I said, oh, I haven't thought about it at all. So I just said, I'm Luke. I'm an amplifier of truth. 
And then other people shared what I perceived to be back to that comparison, like much more elaborate versions of the same thing. And I was like, oh, mine was too short. <laughs> but in hindsight, um, I maybe I think actually you might have said it the yeah. other day yeah. when I met you with Allison and and you said, yeah, and we went out of the room and there you were the guy. One guy was, uh, uh, I'm a um, amplifier of truth. And I thought, you know what? I think I'm actually going to stick with that because it. It's it, kind of strong. Yeah. I mean, it really, it. It really is kind of what I'm most passionate about yeah. is discovering the unknown and and known truths of the universe and embodying them and yeah. applying them and finding people like you that exemplify them and and amplifying them, putting them out yeah. on all of these all it's, of these channels, you know. I mean, and what I what got me about that gathering is like it was not a fringe gathering. These people are in the world doing amazing things, and like it was amazing to hear how people were describing their work in the world. Because um, to me, when I listen to someone say, I'm an amplifier of truth, I'm an architect of new systems for agriculture, I'm a um, creative uh, inspirer, I'm, you know, all these different ways that people were presenting themselves, I could almost see the beginnings of the fabric of a different way of we are, that we're structuring our story and shared meaning. And, and that to me is, you know, is a kind of village consciousness that, that I talk about coming out of this track inside of you, but it, it shows we're, we're doing things differently. There's a, it's happening. It's yeah. really happening. Yeah, it definitely yeah. is. Well, man, I think, uh, I think two things. One, I could talk to you for hours. Uh, two, I know I have another podcast here in a few minutes, so I think we'll bring it to a close. But man, such a pleasure to get to know you. I'm so glad that I was able to catch you while you're here in town. Yeah, and, thanks uh, for having me. It's been great to chat. Yeah, wide range of subjects there. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. I mean, I think the Lifestylist audience, they'll, they'll, they're going to really benefit from this though because of the diversity of thought and concept covered. So thank you for having the bandwidth to be able to just go in so many different directions oh, with yeah, me. Yeah, thanks. thanks for having me. It's yeah, been very, amazing. Very yeah. meaningful conversation. And with that, uh, I'll send you on your way. Appreciate it. Thank you. As I stated in the intro, this was a truly transformative conversation for me. And I trust that it was for you as well. If you're still here at the end, you might've guessed from the emotions that I felt at different times during this conversation that I was indeed having a medicine experience of sorts with Boyd. Uh, what a heart on this guy. I mean, honestly, like such a unique being and one that's making such an incredible contribution to humankind. So thank you so much for joining us. I'll be back this Friday for number 354. It's a solo Q&A show. And then of course, next Tuesday, we'll be back with 355. It's called Spermidine, the key to longevity, energy, and cognitive power with Leslie Kenny. As always at the end of the show, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors and not just in an obligatory way, but truthfully, I'm so grateful to work with the brands that I work with and to have my pick of the brands that I believe are truly creating incredible services and products for people like you. I'm actually very scrutinizing when it comes to the brands that I represent on this show. So you know, if you hear something here, it's something that I truly believe in. And quite frankly, these episodes would not be possible if it wasn't for the help from our sponsors. So if you're in a position to support the podcast through making purchases on lukestory.com slash store, that's wonderful and we encourage you to do so. But of course, your most meaningful contribution is just listening, growing, and also sharing these episodes when you feel it appropriate, which I'm hoping is every time. 
Our first sponsor is Just Thrive. You can find them at justthrivehealth.com slash Luke. The code there is Luke15 for 15% off some incredible probiotics and other health supplements. And then we've got bodybio.com. The code there is Luke20 and you can save 20% off all of their products. That's bodybio.com. Last but certainly not least, one of our old school sponsors that's come back into the fold since I moved to Austin, as that's where they're headquartered. That's onit.com slash Luke. And if you use the code Luke there at checkout, you're going to save 10% off their incredible product, Alpha Brain, which is really one of the most popular and original nootropic formulae on the market. So if you're looking to up-level brain function, Alpha Brain is an easy and actually tasty way to do that. So thank you so much for joining me on another episode of the Lifestylist Podcast. And I'll be back in your ears this Friday and again on Tuesday. 